Hey everybody, my name is Jason West, and this is a PodClass Minipod. This is actually the last episode of 2018. Really looking forward to 2019. Got a lot of really great guests coming up. Got a lot of really great topics that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. This past week, I was invited to a local university to guest speak in front of a room filled with future teachers, the future of our industry. And what I thought I would do for you all is uh, at the end of the panel, there was a question and answer session, and there were some really great questions that these future teachers asked. So what I thought I would do is I would share those questions with you all. And of course, I would also share my answers, because what kind of podcast would that be if I were to simply say, these are the questions that they have, have a good 2018. So without further ado, here are some of the questions that really struck me in this last week. Okay, so let's start with the first question, which is, what is the best classroom management tool? That's a, that's a really big question. It's a really essential question for new teachers out there. And I know that there are a myriad of classroom strategies. You have behavior charts. You have counting 54321 for attention getters. You have, again, a myriad of options. However, none of those really mean anything if you are not making connections with those kids. If you are not developing relationships with your students, then it doesn't really matter what kind of behavior management systems you have put in place because, again, you are not reaching those kids on a personal level. So you can 54321 all you want, but if a kid is not feeling it that day and you don't have a personal connection with that student, you can 54321 until you're blue in the face and they're just going to keep doing what they want to do. Now, of course, the other part of it is once you have your relationships with these students, you got to be consistent. You can't change from day to day and jump from one thing to the next. You can't sit there and say, hey, I tried a behavior management strategy today. It didn't really work. It wasn't perfect. So I'm just going to abandon it completely and start with something new the next day. Those kids are never going to feel comfortable in your class. If you do that, you're never going to be able to remember all the different strategies that you've tried, what worked, what didn't. Oh, no, you're right. Today, we're not doing this. We, I gave that up three days ago. We're trying this way. You're going to be confused. The kids are going to be confused. The kids are going to be really frustrated because they're going to say, I don't understand. This was okay yesterday, and now you're saying it's not okay today. Or this wasn't okay yesterday, but now it is okay today. Again, you're not going to be perfect, especially on your first try with a new system. So my best advice would be to try a system. If it doesn't work, keep trying it. Reflect on why it doesn't work make tweaks here and there to see if that helps. And if after, you know, a, a couple weeks of trying something and it's not working and you've reflected on why it doesn't work and it the, the, the reason it's not working is because the system is no good, then you can abandon it. But if, if you try something that first day, and believe me, <laughs> I know from experience, if you try something the first day and it doesn't work and then you just completely go to something new the next day, you're just going to keep trying and burning all of these resources all of these behavior management strategies because they didn't work the first time perfectly. So don't worry about being a perfectionist. Be consistent. And again, of course, get those relationships going with those students. You do that, 
you will be fine. The next question is, how do you teach a touchy subject to your students? For example, is it age appropriate to show eighth graders a photo of a slave with scars on his back from whippings? This is a big topic that day. A lot of people had a lot of opinions on this. There were or a lot of follow-up questions. And, you know, ultimately, ultimately what I settled on is I first said, you know, if you're really concerned about a touchy subject, you definitely want to bring this up to your principal before you teach it because you want to make sure that your administrator has your back, right? Because if a parent decides to complain because maybe you went a little too far and the, you know, the, the administrator didn't know anything about this, well, that's much worse. Whereas if you go to the administrator and say, hey, I'm thinking of teaching this topic, they'll either say, great, love it, I support you. And then if a parent calls, the principal that understands what was happening in the classroom and is there to support you. However, if you go to the principal and say, hey, I want to try this, and they're thinking, eh, it's too far, I'll tell you what most good principals won't do. They won't simply say, no. What they will say is, no, but, and they'll try to provide you with options, right? Or they'll try to work with you. Maybe instead of going this far, maybe show this. That would be the advice that I would first give is go to your administrator, talk to them about what you think might be, you know, quote unquote, scandalous content. Now, I personally told these young future teachers that I thought showing a picture like this was perfectly age appropriate for eighth grade students. I also said that you also need to be cognizant of the fact that you are who you are and that you represent something potentially very different to the students whom you are teaching. So just be cognizant of, you know, cognizant's not the right word. Be culturally sensitive to the group that you are teaching as it relates to the content. That's the biggest thing is that content is important to have, but so is cultural awareness and recognizing who your audience is and why these facts are important will go a long way in how you deliver that content. I don't think it's fair to simply say, hey, uh, black people were slaves, look at these horrible images, and then just move on. You have to front load it. You have to let the kids process it. You have to unpack this material. You can't just throw it on their plate and walk away. So yeah, that's my long-winded answer for, you know, admittedly a pretty touchy and difficult question. Okay, question three. When you have a student who is dealing with trauma stemming from poverty, how can you go about providing assistance without insulting that student or the family? Again, a really tough, big question. As you could probably tell, I wasn't uh, at my most hilarious <laughs> during this Q&A session because, uh, you know, how do you make jokes about children who are starving or who are homeless? Um, I mean, I suppose you could, uh, but I won't. So let's talk about how do you deal with something like this. First, the first thing that I would tell anyone is, you are not meant to be the singular solution to all problems, right? You need to utilize the people around you. There are counselors likely on your campus who are far more equipped to handle these situations than you are. Or again, bring this to an administrator. This is not, you are not meant to shoulder all the burdens that come through 
your class door because quite frankly, there are too many burdens to deal with. Now, having said that, something that I have done in the past, I just go to uh, Costco at the beginning of every year and I buy a big uh, pallet almost, uh, not pallet, but just like a big box of ramen noodles, like individual ramen noodle servings. And if any student, any student, even if I know that kid has a nicer house than me, right? And they say, oh, I don't have any lunch today. I'm so hungry. I just say, hey, I have ramen. Do you want some? I offer it to any student who says that they're hungry. One, it's inclusive. It's not singling out any student. And it lets people know that they can feel comfortable with asking me uh, if I can give them food. And it doesn't put a stigma on them. It doesn't, you know, wave a big flag saying, hey, I don't have enough money or hey, I haven't eaten in a while. It's just open for everyone. So if you feel compelled to help in some way in your class, you can certainly do something like that. But again, the big thing is do not bear all of these burdens. Utilize the people around you who are far more equipped to handle these types of situations. Like I said, counselors on site are great at this. So utilize them. (sighs) Okay, so question number four is, how do you delicately manage parent-teacher conferences so that you don't insult the parent? In other words, what's the best way to handle a parent-teacher conference for a difficult student? So I actually followed up this person's question with a question of my own, which is, what would be the point? What what purpose would having a parent-teacher conference serve? To which she said, well, I, I would hope that this parent-teacher conference would allow for me to work with this parent so that the student can do well in my class. And I said, and why is that important? She said, well, I want the student to do well in my class so that you know he can succeed and thrive and you know have a bright future. And I was like, there you go. As long as you make it clear that this is why we are having a parent conference because I care about this kid's success. I, I really want them to do well and thrive and have a successful future. So my goal is to partner with you to figure out a way that we can do this. Do not make this parent conference a bitch session where you say, in your kid is this, in your kid is that, right? Another thing is, you know, you don't want to presume to know more about a student than the parent. As I've mentioned in previous blog posts, you only see those kids for at a maximum one and a half percent of their entire year. Uh, And this is also probably the first few months that you've ever known them, whereas these parents have known them their whole lives, obviously. You know, and the other thing that I have learned more recently as a parent is I have a three-year-old and she is you know, the queen of California, right? She is the best, the jewel of the world. And yet, she embarrasses the shit out of me every once in a while. I'll be out in public and I'll start talking to her and she'll, no, daddy, you stop talking to me. And it's like, "Mm, okay, boy, do I look like I've raised a brat. Being a parent is not easy, even if you have an amazing kid like I do. It's not always easy. Your kids are going to misbehave in public. They're going to embarrass you. So keep in mind how difficult that might be for a parent to come in and be told that their kid is embarrassing them, right? Or not representing their parenting very well. Now, at the same time, I have joked before that, you know, parent-teacher conferences are like 23andMe for your shittiest students. And that's true because sometimes you will meet a parent and go, oh, I know exactly why that kid is the way he is. 
this parent doesn't really care. It happens infrequently, but it does happen. And when that does happen, that should trigger something deeper inside of you that recognizes, boy, this poor kid has a lot that they are dealing with. They are dealing with everything going on in their life that is causing them to act this way. And on top of that, they are dealing with a parent who doesn't seem to really care. And perhaps this is why they are acting up so that you can have this parent-teacher conference so that their parents can finally acknowledge them or something to that effect, right? So as long as you keep that in perspective, that you are there for the kids, you are in that room for the kids, you are calling a parent-teacher conference for that kid, it's not to make your life easier, it's to make the kid's life better, right? And as long as you go into it with that in mind, I doubt you'll ever insult any parent, and I doubt you will uh, ever feel like you haven't delicately managed uh, a parent-teacher conference. And also, of course, you know, listen. Just let let the parents lead the conversation. Don't come in and just guns blazing. Let me tell you about what your kid did and what your kid's not doing. Ask questions, listen to what the parent has to say, and then offer your own observations in response. Okay, so we're a little over halfway through. Question five, what do you do about a kid who becomes violent in your classroom? This teacher said that she was in a class where a student was throwing chairs. So this is a really important question because sometimes you will have a situation where a student has a medical issue, meaning they are not just a kid who gets mad, but they can go from zero to 100 in you know, a spark of a second. And if, if that is the case, if you have one of those students who have special needs who can just go from zero to 100 in a millisecond, then you need to be aware of what those kids' triggers are. They, usually you will be told, hey, you have this student they have special, it's a special situation where, you know, they can get aggressive really quickly, they can get really upset. And when that happens, again, you need to ask what are this kids, you know, what are these kids triggers? What are some strategies that have worked in the past, you immediately make contact with the parents, because you want to avoid the situation as much as possible, not to state the obvious. Now, if you have a student who does not have one of these special needs, and has just gotten this mad, well, that is 100% the teacher's fault. And I say that because I know it's really hard for teachers to hear, but kids don't normally go from 0 to 100 in a split second, right? There is a buildup of frustration. And if the teacher is not using de-escalation techniques right away, if the teacher is not recognizing that this kid is building up in frustration, then of course the kid has nowhere to go but up into that level of super high frustration where they are now acting out violently. So figure out your de-escalation tactics. Restorative justice techniques tend to usually work a lot where you, you acknowledge their feelings, you offer them a space to go cool off. Whatever the de-escalation tactics you use, you need to implement them right away so that it doesn't build up to this point. Right, We've all seen that video where the teacher uh, beat the bejesus out of his student uh, recently in uh, LA Unified. And you watch that video, and any teacher with a modicum of common sense and experience will look at that situation and go, that's a moment when it could have been de-escalated. 
that's another moment he could have de-escalated. There's a de-escalation moment right away, right? There are so many moments that that teacher could have taken to de-escalate a situation, and they didn't. Also, again, going back to an earlier question, you are not meant to bear the burden of everything. So if you have tried to de-escalate something and it is not de-escalating, then you need to do two things right away. You need to call the administrator, call the office. Hey, I have a kid. He is starting to go crazy and I've tried to de-escalate and it's not working. And as soon as you hang up that phone, because they're going to send someone to help you, you get your class and you get them out of there. Because one of two things is happening. Either that kid is performing and just wants the attention of everyone else, or two, that kid is not performing and will soon become a physical threat to students in the room by throwing chairs or doing something. And so you want to get those kids out of the room to make sure that they are safe. So you just simply could tell them, all right, everyone, line up outside the door, let's go. And you just leave that kid in there and wait for someone to come and get that kid away. Because again, you should not be bearing the burden of all this. It is not up to you to grab that kid and to, and remove them from the class. If you have tried de-escalating a situation and it just keeps building and it's not working, again, you got to do what's best for all the kids. Call the office, get them out. It's, 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 it's that simple. And I know it seems like, uh, well, how could it be that simple? You de-escalate or, you know, you call the office, but it really is. It's that simple. And when teachers have issues and when we see things on social media, you know, where teachers are beating the hell out of students or students are beating the hell out of teachers, you got to sit there and you got to say, what was not done? What was complete? How could this have been completely avoided? And there's always an answer. So make sure that you are not one of those people who doesn't seek out answers. Uh, and by the way, the answer is not uh, left fist, right fist. It's de-escalation. It is appealing to humanity or calling the office and getting those kids the hell out of the room. Okay, sixth question is how do you encourage parent involvement? It's funny because teaching is one of those professions where all you do all day, every day, is basically look at yourself in one of those magnifying makeup mirrors where you see every single one of your imperfections and it looks like it's a glaring imperfection. That's essentially what teaching is like, right? It's you put yourself in these situations and suddenly you see all of your weaknesses coming out to the surface for me, one of my weaknesses at the beginning of my career was getting parents involved, uh, but more specifically was the judgment that I had with parents who were not involved. I would sit there and say, oh, they just don't care, or I'm giving them opportunities and they don't want to take them. It took me years of reflecting and quite frankly growing up to recognize that one, not every parent can afford to simply leave work or give up whatever it is that they are doing in the day to come to my classroom simply because I've summoned them, right? Or given them an opportunity to come and share. Not every parent has that luxury. The other thing that I've recognized is when parents cannot come to your classroom, right? Or they can't afford to buy your classroom extra materials. It doesn't mean that they don't care or that they don't trust what you are doing. What I have found as I've gotten older is that there are other ways to engage parents. So what I would do is I would uh, send home 
a letter at the beginning of every unit saying, hey, this is what we're going to be covering in this new unit. I'd send it in both English and Spanish, primarily because the two most predominant languages in my district are English and Spanish. I would send this letter home to parents so that they can see what we were talking about in class. Uh, and I would also assign for, you know, severe air quotes, homework, because y'all know my opinion on homework at this point. I would say, hey, here's your assignment. We are working on, let's say, this essay. I want you to go home, talk about it with your family, tell them what you're working on, tell them the angle you're taking with how you're writing it, and then I want you to come back in two days and tell me what did they say. Did they offer any suggestions? Did they give you any words of support? What has your family shared with you about the work you're doing in this class? And I got to tell you, everybody came back with something to share. Oh, I told my dad I was working on this essay and I said, this is the angle I was taking. And then my dad said, well, did you consider this? Or I brought this to my mom and my mom was like, oh, I didn't realize you were already covering this. I'm so proud of you. There was just so many students coming back with such incredibly positive things to say and productive things to say. The parents were really getting involved, but they were doing it when they could from their home. And it was still connecting them to the school. It was still connecting them to what was going on in my classroom, even if I never had them in my space and if I had never seen them physically uh, in person. And it just really showed me how much parents really do care about their kids' education, regardless of how many times they come to my room to participate in the class or come to a uh, back-to-school night or anything like that. There are, again, a myriad of ways to encourage parent involvement. Just, again, it goes back to being aware and empathetic and culturally sensitive to say, here's an option I've given to, par to parents. And if they can take advantage of this option, awesome. And if they can't, what else can I provide those parents? Because chances are, if you're a parent, you, you care. You care a lot about the state of your kids and what they are learning. And you'd love to be able to contribute to that experience. So find different ways to encourage parent involvement. Don't just simply ask them to come to your room. Okay, so the last question, and this is kind of an interesting question. Can you be an administrator without being a teacher? What if somebody doesn't necessarily want to be a classroom teacher? Hmm. <laughs> I'm still wrapping my brain around this question in the sense that I know exactly how I want to answer it, but how do I answer it without um, being too harsh in my judgment? And how do I support the person who is coming from a genuine place with this question? So... I would simply say this, you can't be an administrator unless you've been a teacher in the same sense that a butterfly cannot be a butterfly without going into a cocoon from a larva and growing. You can't just go larva, butterfly, no cocoon. It, it just doesn't work like that. Also, the primary responsibility of an administrator besides managing the school and keeping the kids safe and learning is to support the work of the teachers and to support the development of their teachers. And for the last few days, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out if I've missed something, but 
I cannot see any way in which a person can, with a straight face, offer to support a teacher in their professional development if they have never actually been a classroom teacher. Now, I will say this. The primary job of being a teacher is to deliver content. And I have heard a lot of teachers say that they deliver these life lessons and this is, you know, they need to learn about this in the real world and they need to learn about this and how this is in the real world. And that's all well and good. But the primary job of a teacher is to deliver their content, not life lessons. You can always embed life lessons into your content, but your content is key. And if you're not really into the content, you're just into the life lessons, go be a mentor, go start a nonprofit. There are ways in which you can work with kids and improve the state of their lives without being a classroom teacher. But being a classroom teacher is paramount to having a society that can perpetuate its own growth and continue and develop. And we are the gatekeepers of the next generation and the generation after that. We are the ones who are making the world, hopefully, a better and more civil place. But if you go into a classroom and you don't know how to teach and you don't really have a desire to teach content, then don't go in the classroom. And if you want to be an administrator and work at the top of the food chain of a school, you got to be a teacher. You can't, there, there's no, this is not monopoly. You can't just uh, go, you know, go directly to go and get your $200. You have to understand what it's like to be in those rooms, working with those kids, watching how other administrators do what they do. No one gets to just become the captain without working on the ship, right? So that would be my final bit of advice to this person, which is if you don't want to be a classroom teacher, hey, no shade to you. Like there are many ways that you can have a positive impact on the lives of many, many children. But do not simply think that you can walk into this industry and go all the way to the top of the food chain without one having taught, or two, without being somebody who understands how to deliver that content. So so that would be my final bit of advice to this person. Overall, there were a lot of excellent questions, and it was such a good time sitting in front of these new teachers, and it actually gave me insight into my own practice as well, because one, I had never really put thought into why I did some of the things I did, and I had never uh, been able to articulate so well why I was doing the things I had done. And it gave me another rung in the ladder of things that I'd like to accomplish in my career, which I have so many rungs on this very, very tall ladder that I've started to assemble of this career in terms of what I see ahead of me, what I want to get to. Um, But this opportunity has really has really convinced me that at some point in this career, I do want to work with new teachers. I do want to help usher in the next generation. And I think that's kind of part of why I like being a teacher is because I get to take these kids and help them grow and become their best, the best versions of themselves. And when all is said and done, you know, not to get morbid, but when I'm on my deathbed, I know that I've had a that I have had a significant impact on this world that I gave more than I took that I 
welcomed more people than I shunned. And I, I think if anybody is really into teaching, that there must be some small part of them that would also like to work with new teachers in some way, whether it's to be a master teacher and work with student teachers or to, you know, work with a bunch of future teachers in some sort of education program at a university. And I think that's sort of where I'm going to next. I'm, I'm so close to finishing my master's degree. And when you have that, you have the ability to work in a university as an adjunct professor. So uh, stay tuned for that. I will be hopefully working my way towards that. And yeah, I think that's about it. That, that, that is, I think that's a really good place to end the last show of 2018, which is a goal for the future. We all have New Year's resolutions, and my New Year's resolutions are to get that master's degree, take the next steps I need to take toward working with the next generation of teachers, and, uh, you know, making this podcast, making it even better, bigger and better in 2019. So thank you all for taking all these hours <laughs> out of your schedule to listen to my dumb ramblings. I uh, am really proud of this show and the growth that I have made while working on this show, not just in terms of a, a sound engineer, which has been a journey in and of itself, but in terms of how this has changed the way that I am a working professional in education, it has really uh, allowed me to grow in ways that I didn't expect. And I only hope that it has done the same for you. So cheers. Happy New Year to everyone. Have a wonderful holiday season with people that you love. And here is to a bigger and better 2019. That is our show, our final show of 2018. If you want to continue the conversation in some way, or if you would like to see more of what I am doing, please go ahead and follow me or send me a message on social media. You can find me at Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under the username at TeachMeMrWest. Or you can always email me at podclasspod, that's podclasspod, at gmail.com. Thank you again to everyone who has listened to me ramble on about all sorts of things related to education. Uh, I hope you continue to listen to me and tell all your friends about this show going forward. And here is to a bigger and better 2019 filled with love, happiness, and many adventures. Happy New Year.